Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management, demand response, and the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, coming to you today from Gadigal land, and uh, I'm joined by my friend Thomas Novak. Thomas is, of course, the Secretary General of the European Heat Pump Association. You find us in a bar, uh, in a skyscraper in Sydney, the rotating O-Bar, and we've just finished uh, four intense days of engagement with... uh, politicians, with industry, with not-for-profits, with all kinds of stakeholders with an interest of the, in the future of this critical technology. Thomas, it's great to have you with me. Thank you, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. What a coincidence. We both met in this bar, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, I uh, well I, I did bring Thomas here because um, we have had all these incredible meetings. Um, but uh, one thing that I'm really committed to is uh, trying to capture the insights at the end of these these sorts of uh, trips, so we can share them as far and wide as possible. And one of the great things about your trip is you've been able to bring that uh, experience and expertise from the European market. So maybe if we start by introducing our listeners to the European Heat Pump Association and the role that you play uh, there in uh, in Europe. Let's do that. So the European Heat Pump Association is a membership-based organization. It has 170 members. I would call it a sector organization mm. because we have members both from industry but also uh, utilities, test institutes, certification bodies, consultancies and not least national heat pump associations. Mm. So we are a mix of representatives of, of member states and of uh, the industry directly but also a mix of com- producers and service providers. We are our main topic in Brussels is uh, advocacy. We are following very closely the different pieces of legislation on energy efficiency, on buildings, on renewables, on CO2 emission reduction. But we're also hosting a number of events. We have under COVID uh, organized more than 50 webinars every mm. year, and we think that we are really thought leaders in this. We have tried to bring together actors from different perspectives, from different uh, bodies, and from different uh, levels of the value chain a bit like what we have been doing this week. Mm. So it reflects quite well what you have done here, what we are doing continuously also in in Europe. And now we're reaching out with you to the international level. Uh, The cooperation with you is really closing a blank spot, filling a blank spot on our map because we have never had any contacts with Australia. So thank Mm. you for that. And then we are organizing... Uh, three big conferences, one for industrial decarbonization, one for cities, and one of our main flagship conference where we cover a lot of different topics. And we're also mm. providing data statistics and we run a quality scheme. Maybe two words to the European market, 2.2 million units sold in 2021. Mm. It's a growth of 34% and a total of 17 million units installed. That means we have around 24% of the uh, annual sales mm-hmm. with heat pumps and around 14% of stock. And uh, maybe if we just take a step back and uh, have a, a reflection on the current state of the European market, where it's come from, maybe uh, up until COVID, because I think COVID was a bit of a flexion point in terms of policy and then we've had another inflection point in terms of the the current uh, situation that's occurring around gas markets and uh, the imperative uh, to get off Russian gas. But perhaps before we get to that bit, where were we coming into the last couple of years? The markets have been growing since 2011. 
so then we had double digit growth for the last five years and it was always clear that against the backdrop of climate change and against the backdrop of renewable energy targets and energy efficiency first as a principle announced in the European Commission also as a result of significant renovation programs the renovation rate in Europe is too low there has been a lot of activity our mutual friend Adrian Joyce is running the Renovate Europe campaign which is really uh, impactful in this regard so there has always been an indirect effect on heat pumps because they pay into all of these requests and we the, the growth in 2021 was really surprising to many stakeholders we thought that under covid maybe uh, it would all, the the business would also slow down but to the contrary a lot of people have have behaved as expected they have been sitting at home they realized their building is not fit for purpose it's leaky it's not comfortable so they have invested in technology and that has led to this outstanding 34% market growth then came COVID uh, in, in the second year and, and then also came Russia but we don't see the effects of Russia yet in the sales statistics so we don't have the numbers for the second quarter yet we, some countries, do, some member states have them already, Germany for example has plus uh, 25% to record but maybe more importantly we see in the second quarter significant downturn in gas boiler sales and that is an important impact because it shows that end users are moving away from gas for completely different reasons than governments supporting the pickup of heat pumps. Uh, we met in Brussels. I spent three weeks in, in Europe very recently. One of the things we've been reflecting on, uh, the shift in terms of social licence for gas. And there, there seems to be, and this is certainly what we picked up, and I guess I'd be interested if you would confirm this, that uh, if consumers are re reaching that point where they are looking to replace an appliance, you're starting to see a, a strong preference for going with an electric alternative rather than replacing like for like. That's that's the anecdotal evidence. Do you think that's what's happening? Yeah, that reflects my perception too. I We can see that consumers do not want to rely on gas anymore. This narrative that Russia has spun for a couple of years that A, gas is a transition technology or get a transition fuel and B, Russia is a reliable trader that has proven completely wrong and end users are reacting quite much more sensitive to this than I think Mr. Putin had on his radar. He, he fought his war thinking that he could just get away with that but the end users do not like this and I think they really feel betrayed and they react accordingly and getting this trust back again is probably impossible because we see the fluctuations in price end users do not want that and they see that uh, with the fully electrification of buildings, including putting photovoltaic on their roofs, connecting to an electric vehicle, having a charging station, maybe even a battery in the basement, they can overcome um, the fluctuations and can make themselves a bit more resilient against future shocks in the market. So there's this emerging consumer preference, and, and I suppose that one can say that that's being supercharged by the current geopolitical situation, but there's also a response from governments, right? And I guess that is characterised in two ways. There's, there's the, the, the target setting and, and the, the incentives um, that uh, you know are being set at the EU level and by various nations within the EU, but then you've also got active decisions to phase out certain types of technology. Do you want to just speak to that policy response? I think there are two aspects to note. On the one hand, the policy changes that we see saw their foundations uh, probably in 2009 and onwards. So there is really a continuity in what Europe and the Member States has pushed forward. 
it was a start by setting rather unambitious targets, one could say, but from, from in inside they were necessary on that level to bring everybody on board. Mm. Then developments have continued and now we are discussing even a renewables target of 45% uh, energy uh, CO2 emission reduction target of minus 55%, both for 2030, and an energy efficiency target, which is a bit more complicated to explain, but in the old metrics it would be something between 36% and 39% reduction of demand. And that was part of the discussion or the part of the narrative that we were all used to. And then Russia came on top of it. So what has happened then is the European Commission has published a, first a communication, then a package of policy measures where they said, let's get rid of uh, Russian gas. It's called Repower EU. And it is really, in the end, an electrification package for the whole continent. So what about, uh, you know, there's this strong push to electrification, but, you know, we have this debate in Australia around, you know, the, the, the relative merits of uh, electrification versus, uh, say, hydrogen that could potentially be picked up in the gas network. There are, there are folk around that would say, well, that needs to be a part of Australia's energy future. How is that debate playing out in the European Union? It used to be a debate. I think the debate has pretty much been silenced over the past months. It seems now much more clearer that if for heating, uh, hydrogen will have a very, very limited role, even if, if at all. It may very well be that it, it's never ending in end-users' homes. The German government that was quite a loud advocate for that option has silent, has become very silent, has actually announced that hydrogen is only to be used for hard-to-abate sectors. The European Commission shares that sentiment. It's mainly industry groups that uh, talk about the opposite. We can say we are not making too much of an effort in uh, commenting on it. What, what I can say on the positive side is that heat pumps are developing very fast. The heat pump technology is ready for also for renovation buildings, for skyscrapers, for multifamily buildings. And that means that if we allow two more development cycles, which is about six to seven years, so that would be about 2030, I cannot see why you would see the need to burn something, the need for combustion technology to heat houses and um, yeah, houses and, and commercial buildings. So from that perspective, it will become more and more obvious for the end users that solutions exist that are not using combustion. And then I think you mentioned this social license. What is also very important is what are your neighbors are doing. So how is this how is this coined from a, a social behavioral aspect? And the more the more people use alternative technologies, the more typical this will be. And I could imagine that that neighbors will say, why why is you know what is what does my neighbor know that I don't know that they are switching away from their reliable gas knob. And if it's if it's your first neighbor, then maybe you think they are odd. But the, if the second and third and fourth also joins eventually you will say I should really consider it and if you consider it then you, you may ben you see the benefits of this technology. On top of it the more people move away from gas grids the higher the standing charges for those that remain. So there is also a critical aspect that governments need to take into consideration to organize uh, to, to coordinate to organize a coordinated phase out. Yeah yeah, that's a really really critical issue is that you know regardless of uh, the, the pathway one goes down it, it needs to be done in a very managed way because we, we're talking about very significant investments and, and established infrastructure um, and one can't just leave that to the market you know I'm, 
uh, it's my strong view that governments are going to have to make a call at some point to, to make sure that that is done in a, in a way that brings everyone along for that journey. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question um, because I, I guess in in Europe they have it, the governments, while they're starting to reflect a preference in their policy making, they haven't necessarily made that call around gas networks specifically, but they are starting to um, phase out things like gas boilers, right, Thomas? Some have. Notably, the Netherlands has identified, if I recall correctly, 14, uh, 13 or 15, I don't know exactly, gas-free zones that will receive a preferred treatment in, in disconnecting all the buildings and the users will receive a disconnection notice so that they can adjust to it. And this is a bit of an experiment to see how it, how this organization can happen and okay. how the end users react. Other countries have announced that they will ban the use of fossil technology. The Netherlands has announced from 1st of January 2026 that only hybrid systems will be allowed. So it's, it's a step in the middle. Germany has, um, has proclaimed that from 1st of January 2024 onwards, every heating system that is installed, including renovation, will have to integrate 65% of renewable energy technology. So heat pumps comply, but a normal gas boiler doesn't. Denmark has announced that the remaining 400,000 um, gas boilers will have to be disconnected by 2028 and switched completely to either heat pumps or district heating. France has already introduced a ban on new and gas in new buildings. Uh, gas in renovation will follow and so on. There's a few more that are doing that. And, and again, also here, this is a bit this neighborhood analogy. If you you're a government and you see that, oh, my neighboring government is doing it and the other neighbor is also doing it, then you ask yourself, why Why am I not doing it? And we heard this morning that uh, that some of the Australian states are taking similar measures, um, sometimes really on a local administration level, sometimes on a state level, sometimes somewhere in between. It will become more and more acceptable among governments, and they talk to each other, to take these steps. And when it doesn't lead to catastrophe, it will also be much more acceptable from the perspective that it's not a mistake. Instead, it's a future orientation for society. So this idea of electrifying buildings, of fully electrifying buildings and making them active nodes in the grid, is something that could have to, could could see traction and probably much faster than we anticipate today. Yeah, uh, it is one of the themes of the conversations we've been having over the last three or four days is that um, things that can seem quite intractable, that they're just baked in, that they're, they're, they're never going to change or it's going to take very long, a long time. Um, we're living in times of great flux and great volatility. Um, there's give in the system and, and that there is the opportunity for you know views of society or, as, a, as you say, governments to shift for those that um, stick their chin out and, uh, and, and try something different, prove that it is actually possible and plausible, uh, there's plenty of uh, others watching the success uh, or otherwise of, of those experiments and willing to act um, uh, once the evidence is in. And so I, I think you're right. I think that it, uh, one can't really judge the likely trajectory of the next 10 years based on the relative stasis of the last 20 or 30, right? No, absolutely. I think we we are we have to act under an increasing urgency. If you, I mean, we have read the news, we have seen the news, what happened in Australia in South Summer, we had the the forest uh, fires. Now we have seen the news yesterday. You have floodings here uh, in, in quite a number of cities, and that these extreme weather events will will uh, show the the intense need for action. 
Uh, Michael Mann has written in this book that we have the combined situation of urgency and agency and I think that's one of the conclusions that I take from this week. There is a group of people that want to act and, and we should really be part of this group. I, I, I would call everybody I would call on everybody to, to look for people that are positive and want to bring things forward and join forces and that's what we are doing here. Cooperate, exchange knowledge and, and show that solutions are available and that there is a, a future that is much better, that is sustainable, that is in line with a two degrees centigrade target. That's a great segue into the last few days uh, because you have been immersing yourself in the Australian market. Uh, what surprised you about uh, the situation here in Australia, Thomas? They're really... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me let me start with the positive side. It's, a, it's my first first time to Australia. What I really like is uh, the the very positive notion, the, the friendliness of the people that I've met, the openness uh, to to the abroad, to different experiences, the the curiosity about how things are done somewhere else. Also, quite a laid back style um, of handling things. Uh, I, I never had the feeling that I was rushed or that there was a lot. Despite of the fact we've been rushing you from meeting to meeting for the last four days. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite an achievement. <laughs> so you, you did that in a very, very calm <laughs> manner. So really well done. But but then uh, I think probably the, the most humoristic uh, impression for everybody outside Australia is is this idea that people said, um, "Will heat pumps work in winter?" And, and that's something that I have heard quite often in in Europe. So I felt quite prepared to answer with a resounding yes. But I also asked for clarity: What do you mean by winter? And then people said. Uh, well, you know, this the temperature that you have outside and, and for the reader that can't see how we walk around here, we, we were just normal wearing normal suits. Yes. So it's not really cold. You may have you may need a, a an umbrella every once in a while, but but this is not a winter according to European standards. And so if, if the reader, uh, the listener would, would like to understand that heat pumps in Europe operate until 2 minus uh, 25 degrees centigrade. So for for the average heat pump, or for every self-respecting heat pump, the Australian winter is uh, comfortable operating conditions. I think this is something which, you know, we've been talking to quite um, sophisticated people, really, over the last few days. And there's, there's some that would understand that point and others that were still asking that question. And, and I guess you're response was to point to some of the naughty countries which have that go down to very low temperatures and they're not just using ground source heat pumps they're using air source heat pumps and they're operating very efficiently right air is the dominant technology or dominant energy source i should say and air source heat pumps both air water and air air are the dominant solutions in the nordic countries but uh, also in switzerland and and around also in cold areas of austria and, and germany so it is really clear that if heat pumps can work under these uh, adverse uh, uh, conditions then they can work everywhere. The second thing that I found quite surprising was that you told me in fact that many of the operators of reverse cycle heat pumps here in Australia have to be informed about the fact that the reverse cycle means the unit can also operate in heating mode. Because they bought them for cooling and nobody ever told them that they can they can find a button on their remote control and they can also heat their, their home. So the, um, the, the very significant opportunity we have here in, in Australia, Thomas, to quote unquote uh, get off gas is to uh, explain to people that they have this button on their air conditioner where they can literally use the appliance that they've already got. Absolutely. Hey team, uh, I am very excited to have a co-host for this week's Ad Read, the Energy Efficiency Council Zone. Holly Taylor. Holly, great to have you with us. Very happy to be here for an ad read. So, uh, Holly, uh, what exciting thing from the world of the Energy Efficiency Council would you like to tell our audience about today? 
Well, we are fast approaching the end of the financial year, which means for anybody that has purchased, installed, and indeed is using new assets, particularly those that are saving energy, we would encourage you to use the Commonwealth Government's temporary full expensing measure, which is a tax depreciation incentive. This tax incentive is available until 30 June 2023, which means assets purchased, installed and ready for use by 30 June 2023 are eligible for a full instant asset write-off. Hey, Holly, uh, if only there was a guide that would uh, step businesses through how to build a business what? case. Yeah. Crazy talk. <laughs> is there a guide? There is. <laughs> Who would have thought? Amazing. <laughs> that guide, the Tax Incentives Guide, is available at energybriefing.org.au forward slash tax dash incentives dash guide. This is a fabulous resource that Holly and the team have pulled together over the last 12 months. And as we uh, work our way through uh, this energy apocalypse, uh, geez, I'm glad they did because because it, it could really help businesses to, to, to build the case for investments in, in big equipment upgrades that could really cut their gas and electricity use. It's really uh, important to note that the temporary full expensing tax incentive is available for assets of any value, and indeed it's available to 99% of Australian businesses. So uh, if you're sitting on the couch, get up. Go purchase something that's going to save you a lot of money, both in terms of energy efficiency savings, but also in terms of tax. The opportunity is nigh. Hey, you heard it here first, team. Uh, Holly Taylor says get off your ass and download that tax incentives guide. I didn't say get off your ass and download the tax incentives guide. Get off your ass, download the tax incentives (laughs) guide, and then go and invest in an energy upgrade and save your business bucket loads of money. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Now, back to the show. I want to spend a bit of time on each of the sectors that we have covered. Uh, we've, we've, we've met with uh, experts in, in, in residential buildings and commercial buildings and, in, and indeed in industrial processes. If we start with residential, it seems to me one of the, the big areas of opportunity is to align with Europe, particularly around standards for heat pump hot water systems. One of the things I was really interested, um, we met briefly in Brussels. We didn't have time to get into this, but I've been delighted that we've had time to get into it over the last three or four days, is, you know, the the relevance of European standards for, for heat pump up water systems because we currently don't have them in Australia uh, and, you know, there is a there is an effort to get them in place. Um, what I've learnt, Thomas, is that there's there, there appears to be very little reason why Australian standards couldn't be closely modelled on European standards. It's not like we have to lock ourselves in a room with a blank whiteboard and come up with something. Um, do you want to reflect on those conversations? Considering that the Australian market is by and large an import market, the first and, and very short short notice step could be to just list the results of the European testing. Uh, I do agree that the eco-design and the underlying standards that are used in Europe to declare the efficiency and the performance of the product under certain conditions and lab-based conditions but in a seasonal context could be used in, uh, can be, it's not a could, can be used under the in the Australian context because as I said the Australian winter is the European average temperature level so uh, that is very comparable when it comes to hot water, it doesn't matter anyways in, in so much because the hot water efficiencies is determined according to a tapping cycle. So you determine a COP, a 
coefficient of performance for a certain withdrawal of water loads over the day. And that should actually be quite comparable between Europe and Australia. And so really the first step that, that you could take is uh, collect all the data sheets from those products that are coming or that are also available in Europe and publish them in Australia and then give already an indication to the end user that there is something like a standard and here's the results. Um, there's also the, the in an Australian context relatively limited literacy among the plumbing profession around uh, heat pump hot water systems in particular uh, and I understand you know as as demand is going up for this technology that there's an there's an effort to you know also you know scale up the literacy of, of uh, plumbers in, across Europe but have you got any thoughts on how we can approach that here in Australia? When it comes to hot water heating we declare that product as the low entry level product this, that is for those installers that don't trust heat pumps that need to be brought uh, closer to the technology and then you, you deliver it to them they can install install it every normal plumber can install a hot water heat pump it becomes more complicated when you have to defer, determine the load of the building and then adjust the installation to to that the normal installer can be brought into the game by using this uh, this uh, this solution and then when it comes to heating heat pumps uh, it's an entirely different discussion but here uh, again it, it would probably be interesting to talk more to both the ventilation uh, the, the air conditioning and solars because if this is a separate trade and if it's seen as a separate trade then it could be interesting to say is there something that we have to do to upskill the HVAC installer and to tell them they're also selling a heating device and when that is done then maybe the next thing is to merge the two trades the heating installers and the HVAC installers and talk to them and tell them that they're actually providing a solution and it's not about the technology it's about the comfort that the humans feel in their home and that is Connect that is combined. That is combined effort of heating and cooling and water generation. It's absolutely the case that, uh, that that has come up several times in our conversation over the last few days. You've suggested that idea in the residential space that bringing together, I guess, a, a, an electrification business model that links, you know, the installation of, of solar with the installation of uh, uh, high efficiency electric appliances, whether they be RCACs or indeed heat pump hot water systems or induction cooktops, even. And, and supporting uh, households on that on that journey of electrification in an in, in integrated way, right? In Europe, we have renovation plans. Building on what we have discussed over the course of the last uh, week, maybe we need an electrification plan. And that's even one step more because it would mean that, that you have an electrician come to the house, check if it's feasible to be electrified, do the uh, respective works on the switchboard and, and uh, power supplies, and then one could agree to together with the owners what should be done uh, in a stepwise approach or even if it's possible everything at the same time. What that should also include is uh, is support for financing because it will be a significant investment depending on where you stand, where the starting point is. But the outcome will be positive. So if we take total cost of ownership into consideration, in particular with the increasing gas prices that we observe now, it's probably a no-brainer and will eventually lead to savings to every citizen of Australia. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about commercial building. Uh, so we spent some really um, productive time with uh, the, the property sector over the last 
couple of days, um, sort of unpacking some of the challenges they're facing in terms of electrification, particularly of large commercial buildings. It's the premium end of the property sector which is leading the charge on this front and really trying to get their head around both, you know, building all electric new buildings but also, uh, you know, retrofitting existing buildings. There's all the all the issues that get raised, when, it, particularly when it comes to retrofits around sizing uh, a, a heat pump to deliver equivalent service to a gas boiler, the source heat, um, you know, the, the capacity of the electrical connection, all of those things. Do you want to just speak briefly to, you know, what the state of the art is in, in Europe and what we can learn on that front? Yeah, what I what I observed over the, these different discussions that we have is that probably we need a, a mindset change. One of the points that I found remarkable was that uh, people were first and foremost questioning if it's even possible to uh, re- replace a gas boiler and heating with a heat pump, which shows that they are not uh, completely in Informed about the fact that their cooling devices, also the commercial cooling devices, would be able to be equipped with heat recovery units or could even work in uh, reversible mode. The second question that we that we had was, um, would it make sense to uh, to do that, and and uh, how do I replace it? Would I have to replace the big boiler with a new heat pump in the basement, or are there other options? And here, I think it's important to inform the audience about the fact that in Europe. We see quite a few renovation projects where a neutral loop is installed in the building and then the heating and cooling devices are installed per apartment or per office space. And this is a very modular and very um, easy to install solution because it needs little space and it allows a lot of flexibility. That was something that seemed to me that was very new to the, to the audience that we had. Another thing that was brought up in the discussion was this question of if I buy a new a new um, settlement and it still has gas as the main source of heat um, in the blueprints, what can I do to get to overcome that? And here, it's probably important to talk about blueprints that uh, that that could be used for a quick change because it, it seems to be completely out of date to buy or to even build a building today with a gas boiler in the basement, but. Overall, it is, it is again this integrated perspective that we need, that people need to understand that if they have a cooling device and they have heating, because we also learned that some buildings are not even heated anymore, um, and there's only a small demand for hot water, if this is existing, then the hot water should for sure come from the waste heat of the cooling process. The thing that really excited me about the conversation with our friends in the property sector was the, the opportunity for uh, that sector, which is in many ways leading the world on the sustainability agenda to really put a flag in the sand and also lead on the the adoption of large-scale heat pumps in commercial buildings and and partner with Europe where a lot of those um, larger heat pumps come from. There's a lot of expertise um, that I've learned about from you but also that we saw when we were in in Germany and to leverage that expertise to build that connective tissue um, between the two jurisdictions and and, and help lead the charge in terms of the adoption of this technology. It seems safe to say that that we both agree that uh, this is the starting uh, or it it has already started um, of quite a good cooperation between the two of us and between some other players that we have talked to over the 
uh, the last four days. There is mutual learning to be done. Uh, I think Europe can learn from you as one of the markets that's, that is decarbonizing very, very fast, probably decarbonizing much faster its electricity grid than we uh, will see in the next five years and that will have the unique problems that that faces and then we can see what heat pumps with the demand uh, flexibility potential can contribute to that. On the other hand, we can probably deliver these heat pumps to this market already now. So there is a mutual technology development that could lead to buildings that are in the future active nodes in the grid that can provide heating and cooling comfort to their inhabitants, to their users, and at the same time help to stabilize the electric grid that is suffering high fluctuations from uh, from very variable supply. We also spent some time thinking about the role of industrial heat pumps, and uh, you know you've heard a little bit about the uh, the trauma and travails of the industrial sector facing incredibly high gas prices at the at the moment. You know, um, impacted by those those global markets we were talking about earlier. There's a there's an intense interest in electrification for low temperature process heat that uh, heat pumps can provide. That's entirely plausible, um, but I suppose uh, what I took away from our, our discussions uh, over the course of the four days was that um, unlike residential and, and even unlike commercial buildings, there's so much heterogeneity in the industrial space that you really need to think about those those subsectors and the particular applications. And if we're driving a transformation agenda and if you know industry is working with government to drive that, it really would pay to pick two or three sectors and really do some deep work with those sectors to, to get those applications right and use that as a staging point for, for, for building out that expertise from there because I guess there's two things it's, it's, it's the supply chain piece and, and, and making sure that we've got the, got the relationships with the, the manufacturers of those industrial scale heat pumps many of whom are in Europe but then it's also building out the capacity and capability of the, of the market here in Australia to be able to support businesses on that journey right? That was certainly the outcome of the discussion and I would I, my, the, mem- the manufacturers of these products the manufacturers of industrial heat pumps will be delighted. They have told me for many years that the product works, the product is available, heat, industrial heat pumps can provide several hundred kilowatts up to megawatts for industrial processes in temperature ranges up to 140, 150 degrees Celsius. We have even prototypes that go up to 200. Now, uh, currently under under um, ev- evaluation. And what they continuously have said is that the, their sales potential is limited because the industry, the users of the technology are skeptical when it comes to return on investment times of higher than three years. This will have to be significantly changed and I think every offer that they have ever made can be recalculated and will probably be able to be turned into an order. So we, we, we are most likely facing quite a shortage in supply in the industrial heat pump arena and for that specific reason it makes a lot of sense to focus on a few sectors that lend themselves specifically to these solutions. We have discussed dairy, we have dis- discussed uh, the whole um, meat production process because then we can we we can hope for the development of standardized products that would eventually be cheaper than they are today and would then also be uh, easier to be to be installed easier to be integrated in the processes which then saves on human resources for the planning and implementation process applications of industrial heat pumps yes there's exp- examples out there but it's still quite bespoke you know it's being crafted for a particular site a particular process and you know there's always going to be a degree of that there's as i say more heterogeneity 
society in the industrial sector, but if we can standardise some of those components, it's almost like creating the Lego blocks that you can plug together. And so if we can do that, then it'll ultimately become cheaper and it'll become easier in terms of how long it takes for the consultants to, and the advisors to work through it, and it'll deliver that outcome much quicker. But that's about scale, right? Exactly, and it's going to happen. What we see at the moment is that this industry is in a bespoke mode. We, we need to have more standardised products that are manufactured faster, that are possibly more modular, uh, but with experience in this field, will, there will also be more consultants that are ready to deploy. And that's one thing that we have heard, that uh, both in the commercial property space, but also in industrial space, that uh, some of the consultants are still not up to speed. Many are, but maybe not enough uh, to face the, the large challenge that we are that we're looking at. All right. Um, final question. Uh, I posted a, a picture of uh, you and I on, on LinkedIn uh, yesterday, and there's been lots of uh, lots of likes to that picture, but there's also been some concerns raised about the the role of refrigerants in heat pumps, and you know why are we adopting this technology that has has this you know issue associated with the global warming potential of the refrigerants that are involved. I, I just you know want to take take that on head on and 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 get your views about how we should be thinking about the refrigerant issue because I know it's an evolving space. It's obviously something that we need to be alive to, but it's also something that requires a certain amount of nuance in, in terms of how we think about it, right? Absolutely. It is, It is, however, very interesting that in a situation, in, in, a, in a time and location and space where heat pumps getting more and more recognition, out of a sudden the refrigerant question becomes the pivotal discussion point. And I'm not always sure that the people raising this question have the best for humanity in mind but uh, this is also a showstopper that is used to say but let's just stick with the existing solutions and I think that's the wrong framing of the problem. We are seeing that the refrigerant discussion is ongoing. It's actually something that is not new to the industry. The industry is concerned with refrigerants for as long as it exists. The starting point of this industry was in using naturally occurring refrigerants in the beginning of the 20th century. And then so-called safety refrigerants were introduced because uh, the other refrigerants, the naturally occurring ones, CO2, which we can handle today, wasn't a possibility because it runs under high pressure. Ammonia was toxic, so every once in a while somebody would not come home from work because uh, because they would simply be intoxicated. And propane uh, was flammable and could also easily explode. So, so then the other reason people would not come home. So then the, the players in this industry were very happy about the fact that safety refrigerants were introduced at that point uh, in time nobody understood that they were also harmful to the ozone layer that was successfully handled in a global effort I would call it um, under the Montreal Protocol and, and now we have solved that issue and we are moving away I think there is no and refrigerant that is used in, in volume is still having an ODP potential uh, of, of significance now we have the global warming potential and also here we are seeing a sharp reduction of uh, volume and of of global warm of, of volume of those refrigerants that have a higher global warming potential 
we see that we have nearly moved away completely from uh, 404 and 410A that is really on the way out we are now uh, we have moved to HFOs we have moved to naturally occurring refrigerants uh, in the air to water space propane has really made an inroad sanitary water heat pumps the first units are um, occurring on the market with propane air to air heat pumps are moving in that space so you see a lot of development where it is not so easy HFOs fill that gap so I'm, I'm seeing a significant reduction of the GWP value of the whole fleet is that now a problem? Um, I think we are in a flux. The development is ongoing. Um, new solutions are under development are and are about to implement it. But one has to see that all this takes time. So I would always continue to hold the industry responsible and the industry will react in a responsible manner. That's my experience over the last 15 years. Um, what does not help is to say, well, we shouldn't use these refrigerants because the alternative is the counterfactual. And the gas boiler is in, even in the worst case in a not very well with a not very well performing heat pumps producing double the amount of global warming gases CO2 equivalents than a heat pump so if our target is to reduce the CO2 content in the atmosphere then we have to operate the heat pumps in the most safe manner possible in this context that means hermetically sealed units um, pressure control so that we don't lose any of the refrigerants into the atmosphere and ideally recover it near to completely. Hey uh, Thomas it has been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you. I'm, I'm really excited to have uh, spent this time with you, but I'm even more excited about the work that we're going to do in the future. I feel like that we've um, laid the foundation for some really solid collaboration, not just between the European Heat Pump Association and the and the Energy Efficiency Council, but a whole bunch of other associations that we and organisations um, beyond the not-for-profit sector that we've been hanging out with over the last few days. Um, we've spent time with the, the Green Building Council. We've spent time with the Property Council. Council. We've spent time uh, with organisations like Arena and, and Solar Victoria and, and uh, the German Chamber and, and so many others. I think that um, what we can look forward to is some really productive collaboration between Europe and Australia and on this absolutely keystone technology for the energy transition. And, and, and what I am on a mission to do is when Australians hear the words energy transition, they just don't think of, of uh, solar panels on roofs and, and wind turbines in in paddocks uh, they think about you know the appliances in their homes that are using that renewable energy as a cornerstone of that energy transition so maybe you can help us with that well in Europe we have this term prosumer so let, let's make the Australians <laughs> proactive prosumers that understand that their future is bright if they connect their own photovoltaic panel with their own heat pump and their own electric car and their own battery so they are producers and users of, of the electricity that we all want renewable electricity Electricity. What I take home from, from this week, from this cooperation, is uh, indeed I look forward to what we will do together in the future. But I will also take a few of these horizontal approaches that you have introduced me to to Europe and, and see whether cooperation potential of the equivalents of those bodies that you just mentioned in Europe are. And maybe we can even bring this then in the end jointly to a world level. Thomas, um, we're almost done. Uh, we've got another few hours together, but it's been great uh, uh, catching up and uh, extracting that last ounce of energy. 
out of you. We've worked you pretty hard. You are officially off the clock now. I can report. You can do whatever you want for the remainder of your whatever 16 hours in Australia. <laughs> but thanks, mate. You've been a trooper. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It was an immense pleasure. Thanks a lot. So that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. Thomas is at Thomas Novak EU, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management, and demand response, you can find the Energy Efficiency Council at eec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us, and we'll catch you soon. 